Chasing Leviathan is a podcast about pursuing truth, one big question at a time through the discipline of listening. Truth is too big to tame. But if we pay close attention, we might get the chance to glimpse something truly magnificent. So please join me in this pursuit, one week at a time. Hello and welcome to Chasing Leviathan. I'm here with Dr. Dwayne Armitage, uh, Associate Professor at Scranton University uh, in for philosophy. And uh, Dr. Armitage, wonderful to have you here Thank today. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. And we're today we're here when we're talking about uh, your book, uh, Philosophy's Violent Sacred. And so tell us a little bit about what um, motivated you to write this book. Well, a couple of things. So it was in, I think, about the spring of 2017, I, I got really interested in, and this is unrelated to what ended up happening in the book, uh, atonement theories of Christ, you know, why Christ had to die, you know, what various, you know, penal substitution. And Gerard, I knew, had a different take on the atonement, okay? And then I'm also interested, uh, you know, unrelated in what I saw as some kind of shift politically in our culture. And I was starting to notice the things on CNN and Fox News and students were coming to me talking like this. It was as if they had read the postmodern thinkers that I was studying in grad school, like the outrageous ones. And they were just, they were, um, I don't know, uh, regurgitating this stuff, not really having thought through it. So I'm thinking, oh my God, something has changed here where students are, or this uh, postmodern philosophy, you know, the philosophy that was dominant in, in France and uh, Germany in, the, I don't know, mid-20th century, is now becoming mainstream. And it happened right around 2014, 2015. Really, you know, coincided with Trump um, uh, being the nominee and the Republican nominee. And so I thought, this is interesting. So I was investigating more about postmodernism. And then I found, you know, in Girard, a kind of nice, um, I don't know, response and critique of postmodernism. Uh, so it was kind of a confluence of things there, you know? Yes, I, I think you mentioned uh, it was that this book is the fruit of a recent obsession, yeah. uh, which began the summer of 2012. Yeah. Um, and so uh, talk to us a little bit about that. Uh, you know, you start off the book by defining things like postmodernism and continental philosophy, and you even talk about how those things are, in, you use them interchangeably in the book. Yeah. So can you give us a little bit more about that? And then... Um, and how they're used in the book. Yeah, so I, what I mean by the term postmodernism, and when I say this, uh, I usually, I, I'll, when I'm debating other academics and things, they'll be like, well, what do you mean by postmodernism? And I'll give this definition and they'll go, oh, okay, yeah, that sounds right. So, and, you yeah, know, yeah. <laughs> and this really is, and I actually think postmodernism is this huge term, but it actually is pretty simple. It's very simply, if you take modernism to mean, and, you know, modern philosophy is, you know, Descartes, Kant, the Enlightenment thinkers, rationalism, rational philosophy. Postmodernism is post rationalism or post-reason. That is, it's a critique of rationality. That's that's what every postmodern thinker has in common. Now, why they critique it, how they critique it, their response to it differs slightly, but it's pretty pretty much that that wholesale critique of reason, which begins begins with Kant, uh, a little bit of Kierkegaard, Marx is in there, but the, it really starts off, it really gets, you know, uh, going, I would say, um, uh, systematically, if you can use that term, with Nietzsche. Okay, and with German thinkers, so Nietzsche. Uh, uh, well, let me let me say this: what what, what postmodernism ended up being was the French reception um, in I don't know after World War II of German uh, thinking in the late nineteenth twentieth century that was critical of reason. So Nietzsche and Heidegger in particular. Okay, but that was that was going on since Kant. Okay, um, but really, and one more thing, I'll just say about this. What, what's used as postmodernism now, or what, are, what people tend to think of as, as postmodernism or, uh, or postmodern postmodern thinkers, would be uh, the thinking that happened, as I said, in France after World War II, uh, when there, when philosophers are thinking, what the hell happened after after the Holocaust? What what, what explains this? How can we prevent this? But what explains this? And so uh, there was this radical victimization that happened uh, with the Nazis and with you know uh, the Marxists. What happened and Reason and absolute truth became the sort of target. And so they used, I think these French thinkers, Foucault, uh, uh, Derrida, used um, Sartre to some extent, uh, de Beauvoir, used the critiques in Nietzsche and Heidegger to criticize um, rationality, 
And that's their sort of answer. And you'll, you'll see this everywhere is that essentialism, reason, absolute truth, whatever you want to call it, categories, rational categories are the problem. And so if you can just get rid of those, then you'll have a sort of peace because that's precisely what happened. Uh, what went wrong in the 20th century was that everyone thought they had the truth and then tried to ram it down people's throats. So that's it pretty much in what postmodernism is. It's, it's got that anti-victimization ethic and it's a critique of reason. Yeah, I, I, even as you mentioned that, uh, are you familiar with uh, the Heidelberg conference between um, Hans-Jörg Gadamer, Jacques Derrida, and uh, Lacou Labarth? Vaguely, or vaguely. Labarth, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, and that's just uh, really interesting to me because, uh, you know, that's, it's the three of them in conversation um, talking about, they were, at the time, they were discussing uh, censoring Nazi writings. And the three of them came to talk about it. And, uh, and of course, Derrida uh, talks about um, his use of deconstruction, which, of course, he took from Heidegger, like that term, yeah. and made it his yeah. own. And a lot of it was him talking about rejecting that. Um, and so, like, I'm, I'm curious, as you talk here about this critique, uh, like uh, Gerard's critique of Heidegger and how Heidegger uh, has this, like, implicit... Uh, this violence meeting violence, if I could, if if that's the right way to think about it. Um, what responsibility do we have to uh, appropriate, but also um, uh, to deconstruct, but also to build again using Heidegger's thinking? Because obviously we don't want to go down the path that Heidegger went down, right? Yeah. Like that's like, but he was obviously also a brilliant thinker. Yeah. Okay. Let me. The, the, that's a really good question. Um, uh, and I think it does have an answer, but I wanted to say before I forget, as you mentioned, uh, yeah. uh, uh, Derrida took deconstruction from Heidegger. Heidegger actually took that from Luther, Martin Luther, uh, in the Reformation. Um, and Luther was very critical of rationality. He called reason uh, Satan's whore uh, because he thought that <laughs> part of the reason why Catholicism got so bound up with, um, you know, a works-based theology and, you know, earning salvation, Luther thought was because of its um, relationship to Aristotle and Greek thinking. And rationality. So the critique of reason really is really begins with Martin Luther. And so and Heidegger had this obsession with Luther in the early, uh, I guess, 1920s, um, studied with a famous Lutheran thinker named Rudolf Bultmann uh, Marburg. Anyway, so that that's already in that system. So Heidegger is bringing that out of Luther, that, that deconstruction, which meant to detangle faith from reason. And then Heidegger does something else with it. But to your question about, I, I guess, what what can be salvaged in Heidegger's thinking? Uh, is that is that my understanding what you said correctly? Yeah. Yeah. What's our responsibility to salvage it? Too? Yeah. Like, I mean, because like the the reaction, and I, I mean, I'm sure you've, you're familiar with this. Anytime you talk to a continental philosopher and it comes up that Heidegger is an important thinker, people are like, but he's a Nazi, yeah. right? Like that's yeah. like. Yeah. So I'm, I'm actually reading about that now. Yeah. Well, Gerard has this great this great line about Heidegger and and Nazism. He says, yeah. look, the only the, the big problem with Martin Heidegger was, uh, and his responsibility to for and you know thinking of Nazism is that he whitewashed Nietzsche. You know, Heidegger read Nietzsche and took out all the anti-Christian, anti-Jewish stuff in Nietzsche and focused on Nietzsche's metaphysics. He made Heidegger made Nietzsche the last metaphysician. But according to Gerard, and I, I completely agree with Gerard here, um, that if there's any philosophy that is the backbone and structure to national socialism, it's Nietzscheanism. Okay, so the real the ideology of of Nazism. Now, it's not all Nietzscheism, it, but but the structure is in there. And the Nazis read Nietzsche. They tried to read Heidegger. They picked up Heidegger and they go, we have no idea what this is talking about. But Nietzsche, this stuff right. is good. So I think Hitler uh, gifted Mussolini on his birthday, the collected works of Nietzsche or something like this. Nietzsche's sister was very much involved with National Socialism. So anyway, uh, but the answer to your question is, um, I don't think in Heidegger's thinking, although it's there, uh, I think Heidegger the person is is more of a problem than Heidegger's thought, although there is elements of of what, what's some elements of National Socialism, but not the most pernicious parts. Um, uh, in Heidegger's thinking, but I, what, what I see is, is 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 really insightful about Heidegger's thinking is a, is a critique of, I guess, for lack of a better term, reductionism, the reduction of the meaning of things to one meaning. So what you see, you know, you see that now, uh, or you saw it maybe in the past twenty years in terms of scientism or reductive naturalism, the idea that science can account for everything, that the physical world is all that that you know uh, that we can know, and that, you know. Uh, and I think Heidegger gives a, a really damning critique of that and shows why that there's problems with that. 
um, that, you know, there are multiple meanings to the, to the meaning of being. And human, anytime you use the word just, well, human beings are just animals or, or we're just our neurochemistry. There's a problem there. And then, and I think Heidegger's right about that. So that criticism. Um, but one more thing I wanted to say, the stuff in Heidegger that is really Nazi is uh, the focus, at least for a certain period in the 1930s, on the return to the soil, uh, kind of collectivism based on uh, Blutenboden, you know, what the Nazis would say, Bluten, blood and soil. Um, and Heidegger did think, and so there is this, this criticism of the Enlightenment and overly rationalistic thinking that wants to make everything universal and not focus on the particular and the, the earthiness of things. And that, you know, that was, you know, taken up by Nazism as well. So, yeah. But I'd say to answer your Absolutely. question, it's the anti-reductionism yeah, stuff in Heidegger that's the most, I think, interesting. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and so, and, and this is kind of uh, what came out in, in that Heidelberg conference. And it just, uh, even as we're, you're talking about critiquing him, um, but also using him, because you, you say that in the introduction here, like just uh, the answer is not to just censor people, yeah. right? It's not just like, because that was the, that, you know, with the Holocaust and everything else, they were talking about just getting rid of the books. Yeah. And so, and even today, people are like, oh, we just shouldn't, should we not read him? Should we just like take him out of courses and stuff like that? And so, um, yeah, thank you. Just, I'm obviously, I'm processing as I go here. The, uh, when you, when you talk about the violence that's inherent though, in their own crit critique of violence, what are you talking about there? What is the, the violence that Gerard finds that you find in, uh, implicit in Nietzsche and Heidegger? Well, okay. So Nietzsche is much easier. Uh, Nietzsche, yeah, thinks, no, you know, that's true. Nietzsche thinks that <laughs> pretty explicit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, anytime Nietzsche <laughs> yeah. says, oh, okay. Um, let's see. Nietzsche, there's a great quote that I think summarizes where, summarizes where Nietzsche is coming from. He says, anybody who, who subscribes to morality passes sentence on existence. And that's interesting. What does he mean? It's in, it's in the Nachlass. It's in his, his uh, unpublished notes. But I think that summarizes nicely Nietzsche's criticism of, of Western culture and why he – Nietzsche thinks that essentially violence is a part of life. And if you're going to have a philosophy that affirms life, because that's what Nietzsche is all about, pro-life, af unconditional affirmation of life, what does not kill me makes me stronger, amor fati or the love of your fate, uh, you have to embrace all of life, you know, and that includes the violent as well as the peaceful. You know, the murderous, the rapacious, all, all these different things about life, they're all, they all need to be affirmed. So, you know, when I'm teaching this in class, I talk about ways in which I see various postmodern versions of this uh, miss Nietzsche's point. Like, for example, what, what was the second Star Wars movie that just came out? Uh, Return of the Last Jedi or something like this? Do you remember, did you see this one? It, it was sort of- it, I, I think I did. I, I've tried to forget about him, I'll be yeah, honest. Yeah, it, so. <laughs> oh, it was horrible. And here's why it was horrible. So the whole movie was about, yeah, we need to embrace this kind of un affirmation of both light and darkness, uh, joy, you know, and violence and all these things. Nobody would say though, yeah, you need a little victimization. You need a little uh, oppression. You need a little persecution. That, But that's precisely what Nietzsche is saying. We need to affirm all of, of humanity, all of our actions, you know, and so- in the animal kingdom, their animals are kind and loving, but they're also very violent. And Nietzsche thinks we're just animals in blazers. And so uh, the violence in Nietzsche is, Nietzsche is saying, look, this is what it means to be a human being. It means to be violent and peaceful. It means to be fully, it means to be overflowing with life and power. And sometimes that's expressed violently. The only time we, we call it violence because we want to pass sentence on it. So when we get, morality is all about saying, we're going to, you know, excise this aspect of of existence out and, and focus on this one. Now, I happen to think that that's good. I think Nietzsche's nuts. You know, I, I mean, it's great. He has yeah, things yeah. like where he says, um, for example, in the Antichrist, uh, one of the last books he wrote, uh, let the weak and the ill-constituted die. Let them die off. It's, it, you know, and it's our job to help them to do so. You know, compassion, this idea of preserving what's weak and, and uh, sickly is, is horrible. You know, it's, it's anti-life. So it, it, the answer to the first part, you know, where's the violence in Nietzsche? It's, it's all over. He, Nietzsche thinks that we need to affirm violence. Now, Gerard has this line, I forget where it is, where he says something like, will to power in Nietzsche at the end of the day is, is violence because, you know, it's, it's mostly expressed in violence. But um, and in Heidegger, uh, it's a little bit more complicated. In the 1930s, Heidegger was very interested in, the, uh, in this idea of, of struggle. You know, it's a Nazi term, Hitler, my struggle, mein Kampf. Uh, Heidegger saw as, as a kind of tension and struggle at the heart of reality. 
and of course, this is this is totally Nazi in the sense um, that you know the being and you know greatness comes about through struggle and resistance and, the, and overcoming resistance. It's also very Nietzschean too. So um, Nietzsche has this line right, right. again in the Antichrist: um, "What is uh, what is what is good? All that increases uh, will to power. What's bad? All that makes you weak. What's happiness when we overcome resistance?" Okay, and so Heidegger was reading Nietzsche in the 1930s, and and it was sort of a confluence of things when he joined the Nazi Party. When you know, but I would say in Heidegger you find this as well, namely that violence uh, is a part of being; it's a part of reality that needs to be properly understood. Um, now, what unites, I think, all of these 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 thinkers, and why I think it's 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 a little disingenuous for postmodernism to adopt this, is that once you critique rationality, uh, you have a hard time. Uh, arguing against these kind of things. You have a hard time arguing that, you know, you know, judging that anything is good or anything is bad kind of thing. And Luther winded, wound up in the same problem, by the way, because uh, he was so critical of uh, rational categories being applied to God. Uh, and at the end of the day, Luther had to say that Luther says somewhere explicitly that God wills sin and wills evil because uh, it's, it's very bizarre, but it, it, all of this is sort of yes. connected in a weird way, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. Because Luther well, was and so that's, uh, Oh, good. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, uh, I mean, you know, we were talking about those ties and I, I've heard, and I'm, I'm not a Nietzsche scholar by any means, I've read a few of his books, but um, that Hitler obviously like, it's a pretty shallow reading of Nietzsche, but still like when you talk about the weak dying off, you know, and you talk about the best science of the day, I mean, actually it's not in quotes, the best science of the day was you was eugenic, pro-eugenics, right? I mean, and that's not a German thing, that's into the US, like, it's so easy to see this very potent um, kind of brewing cauldron of uh, nastiness that became Nazi, uh, Nazism. It, like, that all, that all makes sense, right? Like, um, and so, yeah, even as, as you're, you're talking through this, um, it just, uh, the confluence of ideas, the way that uh, Darwinism was uh, being accepted and you know, is today accepted in, in for the, rightfully so in biology, right? But not, uh, but it was being applied socially. Yeah. Um, and you, go ahead. No, that's, and see, that's the thing. That is in Nietzsche. That social Darwinism uh, is, is in Nietzsche. Now, the difference, I would say, the biggest difference between Nietzscheanism and Hitlerism and Nazism is the emphasis on the collective. In Nietzsche, you, you have an emphasis on the individual. Nietzsche was very wary of Groupthink of collectivism of all these of German nationalism of anti he was very philo-Semitic he was against anti-Semitism. However, Nietzsche, the metaphysics that Nietzsche presents is the only one that could give sense to to what Nazism is talking about. If you're looking at the world in terms of power and and strength, uh, it, it's it's not that hard to get Nazism from that. But Nietzsche was aware of that on the same time. So I don't think Nietzsche's thinking is Nazi, but I think it's the closest thing that we have. If if that makes sense. Um, yeah. So and right there's that di that distinction is important. Yeah, yeah. No, I appreciate you saying that. But one of the things Nietzsche is very 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 critical of the value system in the West, namely what we would call probably now social justice. He calls it equality. We would call it social justice. Gerard calls it uh, 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 concern for victims or the anti-victimization ethic. You know, and Nietzsche and, and so and this is sort of the the through line I found in Gerard Nietzsche and in postmodernism, namely. All right. So postmodernism is a critique of rationality. What's left when you critique rationality? Power. That's it. That's how, you, if you can't understand, understand the world rationally, you have to understand it in terms of power. And then Nietzsche's point is, and this is, he says this all over, but most explicitly in the genealogy of morals, you critique reason, power is left. Power bifurcates, obviously, into those who have it and those who don't have it. So strength and weakness, right? Now, what Nietzsche does is he says, why should we, we just have this assumption that we need to, need to side with the weak. Why? The only reason we, aside, we side with the weak is 2,000 years of catechesis in Judeo-Christianity. There's absolutely no justification for that, right? Why would we side with the weak? Let's side with the strong. And Nietzsche does. He, he advocates a, a kind of philosophy of virtue, uh, virtue meaning strength and power. And, uh, and it's interesting. In, in all the Western traditions prior to the Jews, uh, particularly Greek thinking, it was all an emphasis on strength and mastery and power and courage. This, this idea of compassion and mercy, uh, we take it so for granted. We think the rest of the world, you know, this was just in the air all the time. It wasn't. This was this was the unique invention, uh, and I'm getting this from Gerard, of, of the Jews and then, you know, universalized with the Christians. And that's why uh, Gerard says Nietzsche saw this. He just disagreed with it. So Gerard says somewhere that Nietzsche is the greatest theologian in the last 200 years because he really got the essence of Christianity. And so that's the thing. And that's, that's, I would say that move from the critique of reason 
to the emphasis on power as the best way to understand the world, and then the bifurcation of power into groups, uh, strong and weak, and then that gets replayed in the postmodern system. So postmodernism is with it up, to, is with Nietzsche up to there. Critique of reason, power, group identity, right, strength and weakness. Postmodernism just sides with the weak, and Nietzsche says, "Well, why would you do that? There's absolutely no justification for that." Um, but of course, you know a lot of the stuff that we see in in modern politics, identity politics, the 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 gender battles and the race battles and the, you know, whatever, however you want to cut the yeah. cloth. Class battles. Yeah. yeah. All that. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's explicitly, but that's all there really is to postmodernism. It's just that sort of step. And that's why a lot of people say, uh, I think um, there's a, there's a, a thinker uh, named Stephen Hicks, philosopher who wrote a book that says, look, postmodernism is just neo-Marxism. And he's right. I think, I think he's right about that because Marx says, all right, the history of the world is a history of class conflict. Reason goes out the door. Reason is the result of our, our economic situation, says this in the German ideology. And so you have a critique of reason in terms of power, power, power bifurcates in terms of bourgeoisie and proletariat or owners and workers. And then you side with the proletariat. And, and the other thing is Marx says at the end of the communist manifesto, um, we want a violent revolution of the proletariat, you know? And so there's really no reason why, you know, uh, there's really no reason, uh, with, uh, with the way postmodernism lays out the values, its, its value system and its metaphysics that we should ever strive for something like the beloved community of Martin Luther King or something like that, which, you know, I don't know, I guess I'm naive, but I thought we were still on the same page. And then about five years ago, like, for example, I was saying, well, isn't it good if we all could get along, we all could have this beloved community that King talks about where we could reach a kind of, dare I say, a colorblind society now in a qualified sense. But somebody said, right, right. somebody said to me, that's racist to say that. And I thought, wait, what? You know, I, I, no, I don't agree that that's racist. I, I simply reject it. I think if you accept the postmodern metaphysics, then maybe it's racist, but I don't think it's racist. So it went from, it's, it's interesting. It went from being the ideal to naive and then overnight to being not just naive, but also offensive and violent and racist. So uh, this is just an example of the way it plays out. I'm sort of rambling now, but I hope this all, <laughs> all makes sense. No, no, I love this. Yeah. Um, I, I live for the ramble. So uh, even, uh, you know, when you talk about, um, I remember reading uh, Foucault for the first time, and I I'd gotten History of Madness, and uh, in the introduction he says, "I am pursuing," and I, I'm going to butcher this, but I'm pursuing this quest under a Nietzschean sun. Yeah, yeah. And literally, what's the what is the dominant concept in Foucault when you talk about the French reception of German thought? There you go. I mean, the dominant conception is Foucault is is power. Is power. So I and, yes, and you're exactly right. And a critique of reason, and Foucault doesn't put yeah. it that way. He puts it as. Uh, a critique of the category and, and essences. And, uh, you know, uh, because the problem for Foucault is he says categories marginalize, they exclude, you know, and there you have this yes. anti-victim ethic and a critique of reason bundled nightly, nicely into what's called anti-essentialism. And so feminism runs off that, you know, who, you know, that distinction between sex and gender, you know, uh, this is the idea that gender categories of, well, now we even talk about it as you know, categories such as male and female, these are oppressive, but that's the same idea that reason it ipso facto oppresses. And in order to be anti-victim uh, and anti-oppression, you have to criticize reason. And so that's right in Foucault. So in the history of madness or history of sexuality, whatever, what's the madness in civilization, history of sexuality is another book where he talks about these categories that seek to normalize certain standards of sanity and in insanity uh, or um, yes. in sexuality, sexual, uh, he talks about bourgeois and proletariat sexuality in, um, in history of sexuality. So, but it's the same idea that the cat rational category itself or the essence of something is violent and victimizing ipso facto. Now I don't agree with that, but that comes right out of Heidegger and right out of Nietzsche and these kind of things that reason is just a mere guise for power. If you accept that metaphysics, then, then everything sort of follows from that. Uh, and you, you mentioned, uh, when you were talking, um, to one of your students, uh, I, th I believe it's one of your students who was talking about, oh, you can't, you even use the term colorblind. Obviously that's qualified, right? Like, I mean, we don't want to, uh, eliminate difference. And I know that's not what you're saying, right? That's the qualification. The, uh, oh, I had somewhere I was going with, oh, uh, Foucault, uh, and this, uh, when I first read it, I, I think I was, um, kind of on board with you where I was like. I was like, oh, that's, who would want that? I don't see that. Uh, he says in History of Sexuality, he says, politics is war by um, other means. You know, he flips that war is politics by other means. He goes, politics is war by other means. Yeah. And about 2014, 2015, and I think we've all felt this shift in our culture. All of a sudden I was like, that's what he meant. Yeah. That is what I feel like. All of a sudden politics has no longer become about, hey, we're working together to create something. Now it's just... 
it's it's become a battlefield and it, it it's yeah anyways no and we even people even talk like that like we're trying to p- empower people you know and give you know and and, and uh, empower voices and things like that and even even that way that we talk assumes this postmodern idea like we used to assume that and this also goes back to your point about free speech it's the same thing we used to assume that everyone was a rational agent and you know, we could transcend our biases and our emotions, these things, and come to some rational decision. Now, that seems to just be thought of as a relic of the past that we could actually be unbiased. And so, therefore, we have to stack everything equally because we can't assume that anybody could uh, rationally come to their own decisions or rationally come to the truth, right? And so that's why we French, uh, we, we censor uh, speech as well because speech is just an act of power. It's not about, you know, c- coming to the truth in dialogue or anything like that. Um, but you know, back to your original question about what's, why I wrote the book is I, th- I find this stuff so frustrating is because I'll, I'll be in a, I'll be in an argument with somebody or a debate, mostly with students. And they're 15 yards down the, down the line on assumptions, you know, but I didn't even agree with the, with the hundreds of assumptions that they've asked me to agree with in order to get to their position. Right. So, and those assumptions are very simple that the, their rationality is, is, um, you know, debunked or it's, it's just a guise of power. The whole postmodern metaphysic. Um, and I think if you don't accept that, um, then, you know, you wind up with very, very much different conclusions, very different conclusions. So I'm a big advocate of free speech, of rational dialogue, just basic enlightenment principles that I think we all used to agree on what the country was founded on, the idea of the rational individual, the idea that we can come to a consensus, that that objective truth exists. Now, I, I feel like some people try to say that that's a conservative position, and it's not. I don't think it is. I think it's a very moderate position because um, I think in my book, it's it's a, my book is a criticism of of the left and and the right. And because I, I think both what I criticize in both both sides is the is the power metaphysics and the collectivism, the idea that you would be a part of a tribe or tribal thinking. And that's what I found so interesting in Gerard is that Gerard thinks that tribal thinking is ipso facto always violent. That group formation ipso facto we form groups or we tend to form groups unless we're very careful about it violently. And it's almost impossible to have a group without having a scapegoat or another. So that's what I think is so pernicious about modern politics is that it's it's following the religious formula um, of postmodernism and of of what Gerard would call religion in the in the pejorative sense. Yeah, I mean, when you talk about the scapegoat, I mean, there are. Um, uh, I, I think the the everyday usage I hear are dog whistles, right? Like there are just certain phrases that people use to get people mad on their side, regardless of what has actually happened, what actually matters. And so uh, I, I think that's something that, um, you know, I think there's a, a general collective anxiety. And I think a lot of it is tied to this, just uh, this transition into a, a battlefield on the, on the political side. Yeah. Um, but I think it's a great transition point because I really want to hear um, your explanation and just ha- have you talk through uh, Gerard, um, his concept of the scapegoat, his concept of violence and tribalism and uh, mimesis in general and how that works. Yeah. Yeah. Um, wait, there was one other thing I was going to say and now I can't remember what it was, but I didn't know if it was a good segue or not. I guess I could come back to it. Uh, hmm. Oh, yeah. Remind me. Um, I'll come back to something at postmodernism about postmodernism at the end of this because, about politics and postmodernism. But I want to get to the Gerard thing because I think talking about that first would make more sense. Um, Gerard, as I see it, he has and there's a little. It, here's the book, by the way. There's a little. I think it's a ten page introduction yes. to Gerard's thinking. I had to find my own copy. I, <laughs> they're laying around. <laughs> um, uh, there, are th- what I see is three theses he has, and each sort. You know, and scholars, Gerard scholars, you know, break this up. Sometimes there's three, four, and you see a development in his thinking, but. Um, early on, the first thesis that he had, or first first discovery that he had, um, was mimetic desire. Uh, so mimetic desire—that's the first one, um, and I'll talk about that in a second. The second is the scapegoat, religion and the scapegoat, and the third is the Jewish and Christian deconstruction of the scapegoat. Okay, so mimetic desire, the scapegoat, and then Judeo-Christian Christianity's deconstruction of it. Uh, the first one, mimetic desire, and that's in one of his first books. He discovered this. Um, he was a literary literature professor. Uh, in grad school and reading the novels, and he found a, a common theme, uh, namely that there, that desire in these novels seems to be, and so he found it at least uh, first in in novels, that desire seemed to be mimetic. And what he means by that is that 
Uh, mimesis just means imitative, so that we get our desires not from within, but from without. We we copy our desires. I mean, the whole you know advertising idea is is based on oh. marketing and advertising things like this. That is, we want things because we <laughs> see other people modeling them, right? And and it's 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 kind of impossible not to see this once you once you're aware of this. You know, the, the whole world runs on this. I mean, capitalism runs on this. You know. Uh, I think George Carlin has some somewhere in his one of his bits that uh, you know one of the commandments "Thou shall not covet." Coveting is good; it keeps the economy going. You know, kind of thing. It's <laughs> the, the whole, you know, the whole thing is based on that. Um, but anyway, yeah. the idea is that our desire we have we have basic needs as animals. You know, food, clothing, shelter, these kind of things. But desire, he makes he makes a distinction between desire and need, and says, "Yeah, we have bio, biological needs, but desire is this uniquely human phenomenon. You see it, it to to some degree in animals." But you see it sort of, you know, exponentially uh, 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 different in human beings. Namely, I, I want what I see other people desiring. So I imitate the desires of other people. Now, Gerard thinks the interesting part about this is that this ipso facto or necessarily leads almost always to conflict because the model for my desire uh, ends up becoming an obstacle to that desire. And then once I start modeling or copying another person's desire, uh, that person starts copying me. Right. And so we get into a kind of conflict over something. And he sees this, you know, in literature often um, uh, represented in terms of like a love triangle where somebody falls in love with somebody's girlfriend. And, you know, then all of a sudden the, the two guys are in competition for the woman. Uh, Gerard, by the way, reads uh, Freud's Oedipal uh, complex as a version of this. So the son learns the desire for the mother through the father, but then becomes in conflict with the father and then kills the father or the, you know, that sort of, and he thinks that Freud had a kind of instinct about mimetic desire, but, you know, he, you know, made it into this weird psychosexual thing. Which, kind of went off, yeah. <laughs> went off the rails a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Gerard has a weird respect for Freud, which I think is, is interesting. Um, but anyway, that's the whole point. So Gerard thinks that human communities are fated to violence because of our hyper mimetic nature, because we're so imitative um, we end up in conflict a lot. And the conflict, because we're imitative, the conflict spreads, right? And so this, this point about tribalism and, and, and identity politics and group identity, this is an inevitability of, of hypermimetic creatures. So uh, just think about it. When two people are in conflict, they're more likely to get people on their side, right? You know, people are going to, you know, it's going to spread like this, like just like what we see um, happening in modern politics. And, you know, part of that is due to the internet and social media and things where people can, can talk. And of course, any platform like, you know, Twitter, all these things where, where you can get free dialogue, you're going to get a lot of hate, right? You know, like, I can't wait to see when you, especially post when it's limited. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like Sorry, when you ahead. post this, I'm sure somebody's going to say, oh, you know, it just invites it because anyway, so that's the first point. Human beings are hyper mimetic and this mimesis leads to conflict. Now, the second insight he has is that how human beings have unconsciously figured out, you know, and he calls it a kind of evolutionary mechanism to solve their violence temporarily. And that is through, and again, all this is pre-thematic, pre-conscious. It happens. It seems very real to the people it's happening to. Um, but essentially, uh, religion is human beings answer to solving the, the violent conflict that would have otherwise made us extinct, basically. Um, yeah. Just real quick, uh, two things. One is I want to let our, our audience know that I actually ordered the book and I wanted to show it. So I feel bad that you had to show your copy, but Amazon failed. Amazon failed me. I ordered it a month ago. It hasn't come in. But um, so really, I got to read some of it online and very, very appreciative of it. But the, the other thing, um, and I just want to make sure, one, that I'm tracking, and two, I think it, it might be a helpful example. When you talk about the obstacle in the way, you, you gave the example of um, that reading of Oedipus. Yeah. But uh, oh, yeah. would another example kind of be... Uh, you look at someone like Michael Jordan and you see him and he's like, he is the best, right? And you're like, I want to be like Michael Jordan. But then what you like, what you see with like Kobe Bryant is immediately when he wants to be, when Kobe Bryant wants to become the best, yeah. that leads them into conflict. Oh yeah. Yeah. But is that a good example? Is that, is that a great example we're talking Absolutely. about? Absolutely. Now Gerard has. Or a good example, like great example. Good, no, yeah, no, no, it's example. a great example. Yeah. Um, now Gerard has this, I forget what he calls it. Um, he has a name for. The desire like me or you would have toward uh, the, toward Michael Jordan wanting to be like Mike. There's a commercial when I was a yeah. kid. Um, right, right, right. But because Gerard thinks that hierarchy is so important here. We can have a kind of – I forget what the term he uses for it. But basically if, if it's – if he's just like someone in a totally different uh, class or status, 
there's really no we can just have admiration. There's really no worry about us, me being, me actually thinking I'm a rival of Michael Jordan. But the problem is when you're in the same tier as him, like when you're Kobe Bryant or yes. whoever, or Kobe and Shaq or whatever it is, uh, then you're right. going to more likely have conflict. So Gerard actually thinks there's a human being's hierarchy is one of the ways we figured out how to uh, stop desire. Because when there's a clear distinction uh, between it's it, it sort of control, people know their sort of role and don't end up in conflict with people that now. Um, there's, there's problems with that, uh, hierarchies and things like that. But one of the goods of hierarchies is, uh, that it, it controls violence. So he thinks everything, a lot of the stuff that he, that is, that is in human culture, religion, hierarchies, all these things are ways that we figured out unconsciously to control violence. So, but your, your example is great. Yeah. Um, okay. Gotcha. Oh, yeah. It's and called, that's, uh, I, internal and external mediation is the terms he uses for uh, it. Yeah. Yeah, and obviously, and this is where you you, you talk about bringing uh, so, like retrieving uh, insights from uh, Nietzsche when we talk about things like um, the hierarchy suppressing violence, and I mean that to me uh, sounds a lot like the uh, master slave dynamic in Nietzsche, right? Like, I mean, and that's like, uh, and so Gerard would agree with that. I think he would just say again, you know, going back to. <laughs> Yes, there's violence in life. It's really okay if we don't affirm it. You know, yeah. it's like, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. On the, except when absolutely necessary. Right. Yeah. And so, but there is that retrieval, it seems, of um, that process. Am I, am I right in reading that uh, from Nietzsche into Gerard, or at least as a, a salvaging? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. That, that, that this is this, well, one of the great things about Nietzsche is he's, and I agree with him about this, that we have a human beings like to think, think themselves different from the animal kingdom or totally sui generis from the animal kingdom. And Nietzsche's saying, no, we have a lot, a lot of this stuff is in us and we're, we, we can't face it. And so Nietzsche is sort of proto-Freudian in that sense. A lot of this stuff is unconscious. People are not aware of the depths of their depravity, you know? So, so in that sense, yes. uh, Nietzsche is very, I think, spot on, you know? Yeah. And that leads us, kind of, and, and forgive me for interrupting. I just uh, wanted to make sure I was tracking with you. You were, uh, that kind of leads us into the idea of the scapegoat, yeah, right? Yeah. And religion. I mean, and obviously, and Nietzsche has his own his own things to say about that. But what does Gerard say? Yeah. So Gerard thinks human being again. So this mimetic nature leads to conflict, and the conflict would get so bad that it, um, what happens is the way human beings sort of naturally figured this out unconsciously was to select one person and blame them for the entire conflict. You know, so a scapegoat basically. And so this happens on the macro micro level. Um, whenever there's tension in a community, uh, and so I remember when I was teaching, um, uh, uh, Gerard right around the time COVID was happening, uh, one of Gerard's famous examples is a plague would come into, uh, you know, so in with, with Oedipus, the plague comes into Thebes and the people are like, what caused this? Something, something's to blame for this. And this is pre, pre-science, you know, who's to blame for this problem? This, this kind of ridiculous thinking you know, happened all the time in primitive human communities. And we would go, what's to blame for this? Aha, it's Oedipus. He slept with his mother and killed his father. He's doing it, so he has to be expelled. And so Gerard thinks right in that story there, you have exactly, and he sees it in countless stories, that if you look at if you look at ancient mythology, he finds this thread. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. You're like, oh my God, it is in every story that in, in uh, that there's some problem going on and then one person is to blame and then the problem is restored or resolved um, once that person is expelled. And so peace, you know, the plague stops, peace stops, all these different things. Um, it's in, you know, even if you look at Romulus and Remus and the founding of Rome, you know, one of them transgresses a boundary that they're to blame for a problem. They have to be expelled. So Gerard sees in mythology a kind of uh, primitive religious you know, covering up of this kind of violence in human community. So Gerard thinks that the myths that were passed down are actually the retellings of these originary lynching and scapegoating uh, things that human beings would do. And so Gerard thinks that human beings would pin it on one person, blame them, kill them, and then a, a kind of group cohesion would form. Because, I mean, human beings are, are really bonded when they have an enemy, you know, and they feel really together with, with an us versus them idea. Uh, and so this is this idea that group formation and violence are inextricably bound. Someone needs to die basically in order for a group to be there, or there needs to be an other, an enemy for a group to have real social cohesion. And Gerard thinks this is the foundation of, of, uh, communities of, of the tribe of all this stuff. And religion really is, is, um, is, is the name he gives for this scapegoating. And what, why he calls it religion is because he thinks 
that the peace was such so, so, so cathartic for human communities that the group formed that human beings would retell the story and then they would start to deify the victim that they killed. They would start to say, yeah, well, that whole thing had to happen because that maybe that was a visitation of, of some kind of God or something. And, you know, and they would worship the deity and then they would, what they would do was reenact the actual uh, scapegoat through uh, religious ritual and myth. And so one of the things that Gerard, I think, answers that no other uh, uh, scholar of religion really bothered to answer was why when you go everywhere to you know uh, Europe, Africa, China, the New World, India, are there altars and human beings offering sacrifices? Why do wh- why is there this collective idea that God yeah. needs blood? Like what the, even in Christianity, it's the idea you know Christ you know it, you know the, the priest uh, in Catholicism and in Orthodoxy says mass at the altar, you're eating and drinking blood. Where does this come from? And Gerard gives an explanation. It's very simply the reenactment, the ritual reenactment of this original scapegoating ritual. And then myth is just the retelling of it. Ritual uh, 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 sacrifice is, is the ritual reenactment of it. And it doesn't quite do the same job as the original, you know, and so human beings have to continually find victims. Um, what's interesting too is um, Gerard thinks, and then there is some evidence for this. Um, a colleague of mine is really interested in this, in the evolutionary origins of Gerard's hypothesis. His name is uh, Dr. Christopher Ha. Uh, he's really into the um, hominization process. Uh, but tribes would eat the original sacrifice and eat the immolated victims. So they'd burn up the person sometimes and then eat them. You know, so this idea of Eucharistic imagery, you'd kill the the animal, you'd kill the Paschal lamb in, in Exodus or whatever, uh, and then you'd eat it. And so this is, and, you know, there would be kind of collective cohesion there. And as strange as this sounds, this is in every culture. It's bizarre. Why are we doing this? And Gerard thinks it's a, it's a kind of steam release valve to let out the pent up frustrations Due to our hypermimetic nature. Got it. And uh, so, sorry, I'm going to go. Oh, uh, we were, and then you talked about how uh, both the Jewish, you know, Judaism and um, Christianity deconstruct this. Yeah. And immediately I thought of um, when you were first talking about expelling the scapegoat, the, one of the, the first thing I thought of was Jonah. That, uh, the way he is put, but he's, he's, what was interesting to me, even as you were talking, is he was kicked out of the boat to satisfy God, but what? And this seems different from what you're saying. And this might be—I'm curious if this is the deconstruction. Um, they so the the sailors didn't want to do it, right? Right. Yeah. Ooh. Okay. So I read—I actually read Jonah. I think it's Jonah one or two, where where it goes through this. Yeah. Uh, as a, so, Gerard thinks that you have with the Jewish people the awakening of. The, the beginning of the deconstruction of this. So you're, you're going to find it's not a perfect break. Doesn't You don't get a perfect break till you get to the New Testament and the Gospels. But in jo- Jonah is a perfect example where you see the Jewish mind struggling with the pagan mind, right? And in Jonah, so God asks Jonah to, to do something. Jonah says, no, he goes on a boat or whatever, he flees, right? And then the, the tempest comes and the storm comes. And immediately the, you see the, all the movements of myth. Okay, Somebody's who did this? Why are we going through this? Why is this storm about to kill us? Who's responsible? And we just read that, you know, not having read Gerard, I would read that and go, oh yeah, okay, well, okay whatever. But no, that's exactly what happened to me. <laughs> so there's a problem. Someone's to blame. So we have mythology. Yes. And then eventually, I, I, what do they cast lots? They figure out it's Jonah. Jonah admits to it. He says, it's my fault. And so he's like, throw me over. And so they know they have to kill him in order to restore the peace. Again, 100% mythology. However, you have, Lord, forgive us for... Uh, uh, hurting this innocent person. What? That doesn't make any sense. You know, where is that? There's the Jewish injection and critique and deconstruction of it there that, ooh, the Jews recognize that this is not good. There are countless examples of this all over. There's there's one that's, I think, in the Deuterocanonical text, the Apocrypha, about uh, Susanna or something where they, I forget that story, but it's it's very similar where you have the Jewish mind critiquing it. And, you know, then you start looking all throughout the Hebrew Bible of instances of this where, uh, you're aware that the person being scapegoated is innocent. And that's the one thing Gerard says is impossible for ancient mythology is that in order to have a scapegoat, you can't know you're having a scapegoat. But almost in that story, you're almost aware that you have a scapegoat, you know. Uh, but he he sees all over, even, even as early as Genesis, all throughout that, um, the idea that victims are innocent. So Joseph, for example, story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife, he sees his anti edible. Right. He says, there's there's that story going around of, of sleeping with your mother and killing your father, but the Jews tell it differently. They tell it as, no, 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 this guy's innocent. He didn't do anything wrong. He's being unjustly treated. So, And Gerard thinks that the only reason that the Jews were, well, I shouldn't say the only reason, the, re, the primary reason the Jews were able to do this was that 
they were a persecuted community whose texts survived. So typically, you know, history is written by the winners um, and they would destroy, they would assault all the women, uh, uh, you know, uh, destroy basically the entire culture. But for whatever reason, the Jews survived and their voice survived. And so we have the voice of the persecuted, the perspective of the persecuted surviving because Gerard thinks, and this is the Nietzschean element in Gerard as well. There are two perspectives. Nietzsche was a perspectivist. There's a perspective of power and there's a perspective of weakness or strength and weakness. And Gerard thinks mythology is the perspective of the strong, the perspective of the victimizers, the story of lynching, of scapegoating, being told from the people who are doing it. And of course, the person's guilty. We had to do it. They were evil. It restored the peace. But if you get that other voice, the voice of the victim, you're going to get a different story. And that's precisely what the Hebrew Bible is. Now, when you get to the New Testament, and once you see this, like, for example, you read the Gospel of John, pretty much every other chapter, they're trying to lynch Jesus. They're trying to kill him. And they're picking up stones to throw at him and he's getting away somehow. And, you know, and then, you know, just little things where, you know, he's innocent, you know, so Luke uh, especially has this where the thief on the cross is like, what, look, we deserve this. This person has done nothing wrong. And still, you know, and it's like, wait a minute, we're aware that we're uh, persecuting and victimizing and oppressing somebody and they're completely innocent or what the Roman soldier says um, when Christ dies, truly this was the son of God or truly this person was innocent. I think Luke's gospel says, or Mark, one of them, it's different. So there you have, and you just see it there. Oh my God, it's, it's, an, it's a total taking apart of ancient mythology and the scapegoat mechanism. And uh, I think this is where, and I'm I'm curious if this is part of the deconstruction. And I, I uh, I'm not like leading you on. Like I actually haven't read this, but I, you know, I have a little bit of a theology background, so this this makes sense to me. Like the idea of resurrection, yes. especially that the the scapegoat who is you know in the Old Testament sent out, and all of a sudden we start seeing that person come back. Yeah. So Jonah is cast out. Yeah. And he should die. They are planning him dying, and they feel bad about it, which is its own deconstruction. But then he is—he doesn't die. He is swallowed by a great big fish, and then he comes back to work for the Lord. Obviously, the same thing with, um, you know, the Valley of Dry Bones. You know, like the the hope beyond hope. You see it with, uh, you know, what there will always be a remnant. There will always be uh, uh, a, the 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 sapling that comes out of the stump. And of course, I'm sure that the ultimate deconstruction of this is uh, Jesus coming back in power from death, right? And so, is that am I am I kind of completing the last piece of the puzzle? I'm not gonna lie, this is good. This is way too much fun for me. But yeah, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And what's interesting is you did have you had a kind of quasi return of the victim in mythology where they would come as a sort of spirit and sort of be pissed off. Yeah. You know, and it's interesting, you know, you take these, like all this stuff is going on in the text and maybe again, unconsciously, it's not as though the biblical writers meant to do this. It was just sort of something they were working on. But Jesus comes back in Luke, I think it is. And he's like, do you have any fish? Cook me up some fish. I'll, I'll eat it. Right. And it, wh why would he want to do that? See, I'm flesh and bones. I'm not a ghost. When ghosts come back, it's very different. Like, you know, we still have this in the collective uh, consciousness now that if a yeah. house is sort of haunted, it's because the ghost is pissed off. They want revenge. You know, they, so there's yes. some unfinished business. The ghost wants revenge. And so I think uh, Gerard sees uh, that sort of there was a kind of quasi resurrection in ancient mythology where they would they would reenact it to sort of appease the God. The God was coming back and they could they could feel the collective peace as well. Christ comes back. And the first thing he says is peace, peace, shalom, you know, peace be with you. And so he's not mad. He's not coming for vengeance. And so it's very different. You have you have what you're talking about in the Hebrew Bible, this this hope of physical resurrection of, of coming back in the flesh. Uh, that that sort of undoes mythology as well, and it, it sort of has this anti-violent nature. It's the idea, I think, that there's a lot uh, a lot of reasons why Gerard thinks that it's um, the physical resurrection is important, but uh, essentially it has to do with the lack of vengeance and a and a cure for violence. You know, once the once the scapegoat mechanism is deconstructed, human beings, uh, it's a great um, enlightenment. It's a great innovation in in culture, but it has a danger with it as well. If human human beings no longer have a way of controlling violence temporarily. And so we all have to now adopt the rules of the kingdom, which means turn the other cheek. When someone asks you to go one mile, go two, you know, uh, love your enemies and do good. Let them, in other words, absorb the evil. Uh, that's the way that, that violence and, and uh, mimetic contagion needs to be handled. And if human beings don't do that, they'll just kill each other. And so that's, uh, anyway, I'm, I'm sort of, again, rambling on, but yeah. I would, to put this in Christian terms, uh, and uh, I, we see this as like, it used to be an eye for an eye, right? Like you had to satisfy sin with blood. And instead, the the new rules of the kingdom are you have to um, get rid of sin with grace, yeah. 
yeah and mercy yeah um and that's that's what you're referencing there with the um uh, you know, if someone asks for your cloak or coat, give them your cloak also. And then, you know, if they ask you to walk a mile, walk too. Yeah. Right. It's. Yeah. Yeah. There's a great line in Gerard. I, 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 I leafed the page because I wanted to or earmark the page because I wanted to read it here. Um, yeah. He says, um, if you want to put an end, and this is the new um, uh, rules of the kingdom. If you want to put an end to mimetic rivalry, Jesus says, give way completely to your rival. You nip rivalry in the bud. If someone is making excessive demands on you, they are already involved in mimetic rivalry and they expect you to participate in the escalation. So to put a stop to it, the only means is to do the opposite of what the escalation calls for. Meet the excessive demands twice over. If you've been told to walk a mile, walk two. If you've been hit on the left cheek, offer the right. So it's this idea that when someone is in a rivalrous relation with you, they're going to try to get you to imitate them. And the only way to stop the negative emesis uh, from spreading is to absorb it. And G this is this is how it now it connects sort of to atonement Christologies and why Christ had to die. And Gerard has a very weird reading of this. He thinks Christ had to die to illuminate precisely the mechanism of human violence and to give an, a new revelation of what God is, namely as completely anti-violent. So he so there's that too as well that he thinks with the resurrection of Christ comes a, a, a you know. The revelation of the scapegoat mechanism and then the breaking of it, because once you know you have a scapegoat, you can't really scapegoat anymore. Um, although that's going to connect to postmodernism, because we do have a what, he, what Gerard calls the Antichrist is a new form of scapegoating that sort of bastardizes, bastardizes Christianity and scapegoats in the name of not scapegoating. We'll come back to that. But um, <laughs> the other one is, well, yeah, no, no, that was going well, to yeah. say. When you talk about politics and postmodernism, which you said you wanted to return to, yeah. Uh, so, uh, and it, this kind of, uh, I think, is what you're referencing earlier to what you uh, feel yourself committed to. Um, when you mentioned MLK, who obviously is pulling from Gandhi, it's like the answer to violence is this, um, you know, this form of of nonviolent protest. And while uh, it's frustrating and uh, it does ultimately triumph most of the time, right? Like, I mean, obviously, like, you have to have an oppressor with some kind of conscience, right? But, um, and that's an important step, I think. Uh, but, uh, and it's uh, the, it, probably the idea of willing sacrifice is important there too, versus, like, making a scapegoat. Yeah. scapegoat. So, may, like, and maybe this, the, does that tie into what you wanted to say about politics and postmodernism? Yeah. And I think you had something else to add as well. Well, yeah, uh, just one one more thing about that. And this is a segue. Uh, Gerard sees, um, you know, Christ's founding of the church as still you have the founding of a community on a death, but what you just said, a, a willing sacrifice. You know, Christ recognizes someone has to die in order to bring people together, but the death is founded on the willing offering of himself to, you know, to be scapegoated. And, that, and of course... Uh, and you know, Chris, the, the primary Christian ritual is is the Eucharist, or has, has been since the beginning. And Ger what, are, what are we doing there? Gerard thinks what we're doing is the recognizing or the recognition that we're persecutors. We're we're rec we're participating again in the sacrifice of Christ. We're recognizing that we're we're victimizers, we're lynchers, we're persecutors, and so we eat the body of Christ. And so Gerard thinks that's the that in the New Testament is the moment of conversion is when. Uh, Christians or whomever realize they're victimizers. So the conversion of St. Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul's, you know, his eyes are open because he realized, or well, he's blinded on, uh, by the light uh, in Damascus uh, because he recognizes he's a persecutor. Same thing with Peter. Peter becomes a Christian, Gerard thinks, right? When he recognizes, oh my God, I just denied him three times and Jesus looks at him. And so this is the heart of be what it means to be a Christian for Gerard is to recognize that you're the problem. <laughs> That we all have this in us, you know. <laughs> it's not to be a victim, but yeah. to recognize our own victim, victimization, our propensity to victimize and to scapegoat. Now, where this relates to postmodernism is, is several different ways. But I think what Gerard thinks is that it's not as the, Christianity conquered evil and conquered violence and conquered the scapegoating mechanism, but it still pops up. But now, at least once you have a Christian culture, it's very, very difficult. Uh, once you have this new ethic that emerges from Christianity, which is the anti-victimization ethic, like why, what is the justification? Again, back to Nietzsche's point, if, if the world is just about power, why side with the weak? Well, the Christian metaphysics is, is bound with the idea, we, you know, I have a crucifix hanging everywhere. Why? That's the perspective of the truth. God, that's the God's perspective is the perspective of the victim. That justifies the ethic. Why should we have mercy on people? Well, because God says so, you know, or he says to do, you know, whatever you do to the least, you do to me. 
Uh, there's really no justification for siding with the weak. There certainly isn't biologically. Uh, Darwin himself saw this in, I think, Descent of Man. And this is the one thing I always, I, I always get in arguments with um, uh, my scientific uh, colleagues with or my science colleagues with who are very reductionistic. What's the justification for this ethic that you hold so dearly to, namely social justice? Why should we side with weak people? It doesn't make sense unless you're a Christian. You know, so like um, when Rich, Richard Dawkins says, you know, uh, one of his famous, this is years ago, he would say this, but... Um, uh, why, why do you believe in Jesus? Why not Thor or Zeus, you know? And you know, yeah. why just, I'm just, I just believe in one less God than you. And it's like, yeah, well, why do you believe in Jesus's ethic? Why not the Roman ethic or the Greek ethic or the ethic of the Iliad or the ethic of, you know, whatever you happen, you're, you have a Jewish ethic. Why? And of course we just take, it's so absolute and so, uh, it, it's just, so, we're swimming in this. It's just so, uh, assumed that we don't even take, we just take it for granted that we take it as self-evident that we need to help weak people and, and, uh, victims. Uh, but this is the result, and Nietzsche's, this is Nietzsche's insight of the concern for victims now, uh, or of Christianity and this new ethic. Now, uh, the postmodern point I was trying to make was that the only way, because this we're so steeped in this ethic now, uh, and often ethical debates are about who the victim really is, you know, like, so the abortion debate, who's the victim here? Is it the woman or is it the fetus? You know, so e the debate is almost always framed as with the assumption that, okay, victimization is wrong. We have to figure out who the victim is, and then then you win the debate. And so no one questions the axiom. Uh, and Gerard thinks that what, what Gerard calls the Antichrist, this caricatural aping or miming of Christ that isn't Christ, is the persecution uh, that, that takes this, that weaponizes, I guess you could say, the concern for victims ethic. And what you see this in, you see this in, in Marxism in particular, you know, what's the justification for Marxism uh, or for Marxist uh, uh, atrocities? How, why is it that, you know, everyone looks at national socialism, they go, that's crazy. Never again. Those people were nuts. Why were they nuts? Well, because they were so unapologetically uh, uh, go, returning to this ancient mythology. And they even would do this. They would, they would resurrect pagan rituals and all this stuff. And they would say, no, we're a philosophy that says, let the weak die off. Very easy for the world to go, well, that's nuts. Harder for us to go to look at Marxist ideology and say, like, they're so concerned about the oppressed uh, that we need to kill perceived oppressors. That is, that's kind of true. You know, not, it's kind of true that we should be, we should care about the poor. We should care about the weak. And so an example of this that I give, and I just want to be clear what I'm saying here is that I, I, I'm anti-violent. I don't think, I don't think violent is, violence is good. I'm not siding with one um, political party. Uh, uh, certainly not the right and certainly not the left. Um, but I was on a, I was on a conservative talk show, uh, radio show a couple of years ago. And I said something like the left is more Christian. And in, in one sense. And what I meant by that, and the guy got very angry with me. That, that yeah, I was going to say that went over real well, yeah, sure. And I said, well, what I mean is that they use that ethic, you know, like extreme yeah. versions of like right-wing politics get very, get very racist. Like, like if you think of like white yeah. nationalism or, or, you know, or you look at the, the Capitol riots and the, like no one, I don't know anybody. I don't even, I have a lot of conservative friends. They're all like, yeah, that was nuts. What were they doing? You know, the conservative violence is very clearly wrong, you know, or, 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 or yeah, right-wing violence is very clearly wrong. Left-wing violence, though, it almost always has a point. And it's, it's sort of inoculated from a first wave of critique. So you look at Black Lives Matter riots, you know, where you have billions of dollars in damages, people dying. Hard to critique that. And people are aware, like, well, I don't want to really say, you know, I look at that and I go, I understand why they're doing because they're doing it in the name of anti-victimization. And so that everybody agrees with. Harder to critique the violence. But the danger there is that we can let violence go. And this is what happened with Marxism. I'm not comparing Black Lives Matter to Marxist atrocities in the 20th century, but Marxism did kill 100 million people. You know, wow, right. what the hell right. happened there? Well, it's harder to critique that. And why is it still like, you know, I don't see any students coming in with the swastika on their shirts, but a lot of them will come in with the, I, I would hope no, not. Yes. But they'll come in with the hammer and sickle and people will be like, oh yeah. And it's like, well, that, yeah, yeah. you know, th th there's, there's a lot of murders done in the name of both symbols. Why is one so... So evil, and the other one kind of get a pass. Well, I think it's because of its wedding to this anti-victim ethic. That's that's the sort of point about postmodernism. That postmodernism takes that ethic. Yeah. Uh, and this is where you know Nietzsche, like you talk about, when we affirm life, we affirm violence as well, and what he considers Christianity to be the morality of the slave. Yeah. You know, talking about like obviously uh, kind of taking that is it Edward Gibbons, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, the idea that. Uh, they raised weakness as a, a morality, yeah. and that's kind of yeah. Um, that's exactly right. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. And, uh, and so yeah, it's really interesting. Um, I think the that when you talk about the Antichrist and you talk about uh, because it's okay to use violence against the oppressor, right? Like that, that kind of makes sense to us. 
the problem are the people who use, um, who are like, can I say re-victimize by using the victims as a pretext for their agenda? That's exactly what, and that's what Gerard says. Yeah, that's exactly it. That it's uh, the only acceptable form of persecution and victimization is under perceived victimizers. And so that's the whole sort of premise of cancel culture. You know, why do people get canceled? Well, because they've done some form of, of persecuting themselves and then we can lynch them. We can, we can gang up and expel them. It's, it's exactly the replaying of, of ancient mythology and it does form a kind of quasi-social cohesion, you know? Um, now, of course, yeah. And that, well, I was gonna say, and that's where, uh, and this is exactly where it just gets, it, it, you all of a sudden it becomes a case by case basis when you talk about canceling. Cause sometimes you're like, everyone's like, yeah, that's crazy. And then other times they're like, I, you know what? And, and it just, you know, uh, and that's where uh, you don't have this automatic, like, it's easy to reject Nazism because it, it's very tenets are flawed, yes. where there is this case by case yeah. thing that's going on. Yeah, exactly. And what's great is Nietzsche, Nietzsche has this point uh, in the second chapter of his genealogy, where again, he's always pointing to our human, all too human qualities. And he says somewhere, I think it's in the, I forget, maybe the fourth uh, paragraph there, where he says something like, uh, there's so much that's festive in cruelty. Isn't there so much that, you know, it's a human, all too human principle, but it's just the festivals of cruelty. Like, isn't it just great? Like, and you know, comedians have been talking about this again. I'll bring up George Carlin where he talks about when you hear bad news, don't you get a little joy there? And when you, you know, people get, people are happy when these scapegoats get paraded and they fall. There's a kind of relief they get. And Nietzsche would say, you feel that nice feeling you get when you see somebody else suffer? That's cruelty. <laughs> what? Yeah. Reducing, yeah, yeah. Being pleased at another's pain. We just stamp a moral uh, category on it or a label on it. We feel better about it. And so, and one of the things, this is my interpretation though. I always, I, I at least try, even when you're, even when we're denouncing terrible people, I try to recognize, look, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty committed to Christianity. I'm, I'm, I'm unapologetic about this. I, I, I tell my students this, I'm coming from the Christian perspective. I, I try to follow what Jesus says. I'm, I'm terrible at it, but I really do try to recognize <laughs> when, uh, somebody is, even, even if they're guilty of what they've done, not to take joy in their fall. Like, you know, like, like even like take an extreme example where everybody, I, I couldn't believe I, I, there was a joke about it on TV, you know, the suicide of, um, uh, Epstein is a guy, you know? Yeah. And I, I remember saying that to my class, like, yeah, what this guy did, you know, assuming that it's true is horrible. It's terrible. He was a victimizer, but he's a human being. And people, that was very unpopular to say, to say that in class. And like, right. Right. And right. Like, yeah. But if there are two ways you can look at this, you can be happy at his, at his death or recognize that this is a person and a, you know, a, a child of God kind of thing. That's not really a popular opinion now to say, cause then people are like, Oh, what are you trying to say? No, what I'm trying to say is exactly what I just said. It's bad to right. do what he did and it's not good. But this idea of hating the sin and loving the sinner kind of thing is just out of the, you know, I'm one of these, again, I'm, I'm like this relic of the past that still believes in that kind of stuff, you know, without joining a tribe of hate, you know? Right, yeah. right. Uh, I, you know, uh, as, a, as a silly example, and then I'd, I'd love to uh, ask for like kind of your concluding thoughts, but I, I couldn't get away from this. When I was really young, we used to watch um, almost every night America's Funniest Home Videos. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then all of a sudden you're, you're watching it. And I remember one day we were watching it and I, I empathized with the person who's getting hurt because all of a sudden you realize that two thirds of that show are just people like getting hurt. And then all of a sudden I couldn't watch it anymore. It wasn't funny anymore. Right. Like, <laughs> and it's literally, it, it, I don't know if that makes sense. But. Okay. Yes. So Nietzsche's theory of humor is, uh, yes. he has this line, I think in the gay science, uh, Humor is schadenfreude with a good conscience. So schadenfreude to laugh at another's misfortune or take delight in another pleasure in another's misfortune, yes. but with a good conscience. So when you're watching something on TV or YouTube and these fail things, they're funny because you're, you're, there's such a distance there. You don't even know. And you're assuming they're fine. But like I, the example I always give is if, you know, you, you watch an anonymous video of somebody falling down the stairs, right? Uh, you think it's funny, but if one of you were walking with me, one of my students is walking with me down the stairs and I start falling and, and you guys go, <laughs> you, you, nobody would do that because that's, that's just, oh, cool. yeah. but there's a fine line between humor and cruelty. And this is Nietzsche's point. Yeah. We need to have a good conscience. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. I love that. Um, so kind of, as we wrap up here, uh, what is, uh, just a, a final takeaway you would leave to our listeners? Oh boy. Oh, okay. Well, I, I said, I wanted to return to the postmodern thing. And yes. what I would say is that, and 
I, I teach a class called Postmodernism and Existentialism, I teach as well. And in the class, I, I always preface this too with, all right, I'm going to give you the structure of postmodernism now. And I've had students get offended by the structure of postmodernism because once you unveil it, that's it. You know, a lot of dial, a lot of, a lot of debates on the right and the left have this structure to them. And they, you know, and again, it's that structure that I talked about. But I want to just sort of fill in the gaps with that. So yeah. you critique reason. You and that means you assume that power is the way to understand the world and that there are strong and weak. And then you side with the weak. That's the structure of postmodernism. But also in there is that group identity is is paramount. Group identity is the primary way you understand people. Very dangerous to do that uh, because for Girardian reasons that when you start thinking of people in terms of groups, uh, groups are groups always have somewhere buried beneath them a scapegoat attached to them. So um, it, be very wary of group group formation. Not to say you can't, you can't help but thinking in groups. And like you said, you don't want to pretend differences aren't there. So race, gender, sex, all of that stuff, all those conversations are good, but with an sort of asterisk, um, uh, uh, a kind of awareness of what, of the Girardian undertones of that. So, you know, critique of reason in terms of power, uh, group formation, side with the weak, of course. Um, one other thing too, that I see more and more baked into this is, uh, in, in, in postmodern um, thinking that, you know, in 2022, 2023 is a critique in America of, of uh, it, it, it sometimes is, is put forth as a critique of capitalism, but, but in general, a critique of a meritocracy, you know, the idea that, uh, and so Nietzsche puts it this way, that, you know, you have strength and weakness, that bifurcation. There's an assumption that if anyone is strong, they got their ipso facto by oppression, by cheating. So anyone at the top of anything got there by somehow victimizing. And so I remember, and again, this is controversial. You can edit this out if you want, but I think it's true uh, that I remember when, when we started these conversations about race, I remember thinking, I said to my class at the beginning of last year, I said, watch, anti-Semitism is coming back, is going to come back. And they go, ah, oh, you're crazy. And of course it came back. Why? Holy Moses came back with a vengeance. Why? Well, because- <laughs> Because people were noticing Jewish Americans were were overrepresented in positions of power, and they and again, according to that postmodern logic, they you can only be in a position of power if you cheated your way up there. Now, of course, does that what if Jewish Americans are more successful from from a, a literate culture that goes back twenty you know three thousand four thousand years? You have people reading. You know, most of us couldn't read. Most of, of cultures couldn't read until recently. You know, a culture that or same thing with Asian Americans. You know, an emphasis on education things like this. There's a guy. I forget where I read this, um, but he was talking about study times that could account for what, uh, success of, of certain ethnic groups over others that, you know, the average Asian uh, student studying three hours to one hour for the average, the, the average person, the average student, average kid will study one hours, one hour, the average East Asian student was studying three hours. So there was something in the culture. It doesn't mean that, that people are, are in these positions because they have oppressed their way there. And so I, I think it's very dangerous. Um, uh, to assume that. Not, of course, some people are at the top because they've cheated, but it doesn't always mean that. And um, I think Gerard and Nietzsche were very critical of that as well. So, yeah. And I think that's a, a great, uh, great takeaway. So, uh, Dr. Armitage, uh, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and uh, learned a ton. Yeah. Great. Great to meet you. Great to talk with you. And thank you. It was an honor to be on. 